Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, my name is David Burton. I am Senior Fellow in Economic Policy here at, at the Heritage Foundation. Before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to bring to your attention two upcoming events uh, that are part of our speaker series, Free Markets, the Ethical Economic Choice. Information about these events and videos of past events can be found at heritage.org slash free markets. And the free markets is free hyphen markets. On Friday, November 30th, uh, Dr. Mike Munner, who is the director of the Philosophy, Politics, and Economics Certificate Program at Duke University, will speak on if poverty is the real problem, then capitalism is the only solution. On Tuesday, December 4th, John Allison, who is the retired chairman and CEO of BB&T Bank, and also the retired president of the Cato Institute, will speak on the Philosophical Fight for the Future of America. Both events are at 11 a.m. and we'll be here in this auditorium. Our speaker today is Gregory May, author of Jefferson's Treasure, How Albert Gallatin Saved the New Nation from Debt. Well, I don't want to steal Greg's thunder, but I've long believed that Albert Gallatin is among the most underrated of the founding generation. He was among the top leaders in the early republic fighting for limited government, low spending, low taxes, low debt, sound money, and integrity in government. He was a genuinely central figure in the first three democratic republican administrations, Jefferson's first two, and then Madison's first. I welcomed Greg's book. The book itself is a rare thing. It's a pleasure to read and highly informative, but it's also extremely well-researched, and his notes provide a great deal of material for those who wish to take a deeper dive on the subject being discussed in the underlying main text. Mr. May is a graduate of Harvard Law School, where he was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. He received an undergraduate degree from the College of William and Mary, where he wrote about the War of 1812, a war that Mr. Gallatin, as Madison's Treasury Secretary, helped to finance, with some vexation, I might say. And he was also a Supreme Court law clerk, and he practiced law in Washington and New York for approximately 30 years, most recently as a partner in Freshfield's Brookhouse Derringer. His area of practice is taxation. We'll have time for audience Q&A after the main presentation, and his book is available for purchase in the lobby. Please join me in welcoming Gregory May. Thank you very much. Um, 
Alexander Hamilton's worst enemy was not who Broadway thinks it was. Aaron Burr might have killed the man, but it was Albert Gallatin who destroyed the financial system that Hamilton had created. Hamilton was proud of that system. He thought that the ability to borrow, to borrow vast amounts of money would allow the federal government to make the newly United States into a great nation. Gallatin disagreed. He thought that endless public borrowing was a drag on the private economy and a prescription for economic failure. In the great fight over how to finance the federal government, Gallatin won. When Jefferson appointed Gallatin to be Secretary of the Treasury, the Federalists, who had controlled the government under Presidents Washington and then Adams, were braced for the worst. They had just lost the presidency for the first time in an election that was so hotly contested that it took 36 ballots in the House of Representatives to make Jefferson the president. They had also lost their majority in Congress. And now Jefferson was putting this man, Gallatin, who had led the Republican congressional opposition in charge of the largest and most powerful department of the government. The Treasury at that time employed well over 90% of the federal payroll. It controlled everything from taxes and spending to lighthouses and the Postal Service. It had agents in every seaport. The man in charge of all of that could do a lot of damage. The Federalists knew this man Gallatin all too well. He was a foreigner with a bad accent, a tax rebel, and a dangerously clever man. It was objection to Hamilton's financial system that had sparked the Republican opposition in the first place. And this man Gallatin was Hamilton's most vocal critic. Gallatin's resistance to taxes, federal spending, and public debt had been relentless. And now he was in a position to turn those objections into policy. At the very least, he would starve the Army and the Navy in order to repay the debt. The Federalist vision of a vigorous American nation state would simply fade away. Much of what the Federalists were saying about Gallatin was actually true. He was a 40-year-old immigrant from Geneva. He had come to America to seek his fortune when he was 19, just a year before the victory at the Battle of Yorktown. By that time, the Revolutionary War had destroyed much of the American economy. American incomes had fallen by 20 to 30 percent, and the economic depression that followed the war, which was probably more severe than the Great Depression, lasted for almost a decade. Gallatin struggled to find footing. He eventually settled on the frontier south of Pittsburgh, in a place so remote that a settler's petition of the time called it the ends of the American earth. He speculated in land, he farmed a little, he kept a store, he tried to manufacture guns and glass, but none of that had quite worked. None of that had put him on the path to the fortune he came seeking. But his talents had not gone unnoticed. An aristocrat by birth and education in Geneva Gallatin became a radical Democrat and Republican by conviction, one of those freedom-loving anti-federalists who thought that the central government under the federal constitution 
was going to be far too strong and too remote from the people. Local worthies in the backcountry sent Gallatin to the Pennsylvania legislature, where he showed a remarkable aptitude for public finance, a prodigious appetite for hard work, and a knack for getting along with people from different political persuasions. He married Hannah Gallatin, the politically savvy daughter of a feisty naval commander called Commodore Nicholson who had become one of the leading Republican organizers in New York City. And it was indeed a tax rebellion that brought Gallatin to national attention. Six years before Jefferson became president, thousands of men in the Pennsylvania backcountry took up arms against Hamilton's tax on distilling in what we now remember as the Whiskey Rebellion. They burned the local tax collector's house they robbed the mails, and they marched on Pittsburgh. Although Gallatin had opposed the violence, Hamilton blamed him and his anti-federalist friends for the protests that had sparked it. Washington called out the militia, and Hamilton led the troops into Gallatin's home district. Gallatin managed to slip away to Philadelphia while the soldiers were thrashing the woods to find him, but his nearest neighbor wrote him a letter to say, there never was more industry made by any set of men than them that was here to get hold of you. <laughs> Gallatin's opposition to the violence won him an unexpected election to Congress right after the rebellion. And once in Congress, he quickly proved his worth to the Republican opposition. Gallatin gave real bite to Hamilton's, the objections to Hamilton's system for funding the federal deficits. There was nothing really innovative about that system. Hamilton had barred it from the British. And from the point of view of Republicans like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, that was part of the problem. They thought that Hamilton's system was tainted with tyranny. It made ordinary people pay obnoxious taxes in order to sustain a mounting deficit and a large military establishment. That was just the sort of thing that had led Americans to revolt against Britain. And it had already provoked the rebellion in Pennsylvania. But Madison's efforts to oppose Hamilton's program had failed because neither he nor the other Republicans in Congress knew enough about finance to resist Hamilton. Gallatin's grasp of finance put the Republican opposition on equal terms with the Treasury for the first time. And Madison was soon reporting to Jefferson that Gallatin was a real treasure. From the Virginia hilltop where he had retired after leaving the Washington administration, Jefferson wrote back that Mr. Gallatin will merit immortal honor if he can reduce Hamilton's chaos to order and present us with a clear view of our finances. The accounts of the U.S. ought to be as simple as those of a common farmer. Perhaps few farmers read it, but Gallatin wrote a book to explain where Hamilton had gone wrong. The book was partisan, but it was not like most of the political tracts of that time. It did not sling the typical Republican slogans about political corruption and closet monarchists. Instead, it used the liberal economic ideas that Gallatin found summarized in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations 
to make the case for fiscal reform. Gallatin started with Smith's conviction that government spending retards economic development because it consumes capital. Smith recognized that nations need governments to support the conditions for growth, but he emphasized that governing was not a profit-making activity. And Smith thought that military spending, which at that time accounted for substantially everything that the federal government spent other than interest on the public debt, was particularly wasteful because war destroys capital. It followed from all that, said Gallatin, that Hamilton's system for funding the federal debt was a menace rather than the benefit that Hamilton claimed it to be. Gallatin thought Hamilton's system had two major problems. In the first place, it made federal borrowing too easy because the government didn't have to pay back anything except for the interest on the debt. And borrowing on such easy terms made spending too easy. And military spending made it too likely that the new government would get into wars. In the second place, interest payments on the federal debt shifted money from productive taxpayers to the wealthy speculators who had bought the debt. They were more likely to waste it on imported luxuries than to invest it at home. The country could not achieve its potential, Gallatin argued, unless the federal government cut public spending and repaid the national debt. But it was political brawls rather than books, of course, that made Gallatin famous. And the biggest brawl was over John Jay's treaty with the British. George Washington had sent Jay to London to settle differences that threatened to draw the United States into a war with Britain, a war that the infant country simply could not afford. The treaty Jay sent home, however, was so unfavorable that Washington got the Senate to ratify it without ever disclosing the terms to the public. When the treaty's terms finally leaked, all hell broke loose. Crowds up and down the country burned John Jay in effigy and illuminated their houses at night in protest. A sign nailed to the door of a darkened house read, damn John Jay, one exclamation point. Damn everyone who won't damn John Jay, two exclamation points. And damn everyone that won't put lights in his windows and sit up all night damning John Jay, three exclamation points. An angry mob in New York stoned Hamilton when he tried to defend the treaty. Gallatin's father-in-law, Commodore Nicholson, openly insinuated that Hamilton was a British agent. And when Hamilton didn't deny it, Nicholson called him a coward. That left a man of honor like Hamilton no choice. He challenged Nicholson to a duel. Their friends managed to patch things up before anyone got shot. But Nicholson despised the man that he always called Hamilton until the day that he died. Gallatin called on the House of Representatives to block Jay's treaty, even though the Senate had already ratified it, by refusing to appropriate the money needed to implement it. The Constitution, he said, had given the House the power of the purse so that the people could stop the wheels of government when the government was going astray. It was a bold position. Madison dithered over whether it was right but Jefferson enthusiastically embraced it. 
Gallatin's speech, he wrote to Madison, should be printed at the end of that book called The Federalist as the only rational commentary on the fiscal powers of the House. Gallatin lost this fight. The House did appropriate the money for Jay's treaty, but Gallatin's spirited opposition made his political reputation. It also attracted unending abuse from the Federalists. They routinely called Gallatin a foreigner, and much worse, a Frenchman. They mocked his accent, and they mocked him for attempting to stop the wheels of the government. A Federalist cartoon showed him clinging to the wheel of Washington's chariot, while Jefferson, over on the far right, shouts directions from the background and French cannibals invade in the left background. In fact, one of Gallatin's critics later complained that it was this very abuse that had turned Gallatin into a political celebrity. By the time the next Congress convened, Madison had retired from Congress to Virginia with his buxom new wife. John Adams had been elected president and Jefferson vice president and Gallatin was the leader of the Republican opposition in Congress. Washington condescended to invite Gallatin to dinner on a cold, <coughs> excuse me, a cold winter night shortly before he stepped aside for John Adams. Albert reported to his wife Hannah that he had donned my best, or rather my only, good coat for the occasion. Washington's dinners with members of Congress were notoriously solemn affairs, sometimes eaten in silence, and this one was no exception. Mrs. Washington, Albert wrote to Hannah, continues to be a very amiable person. Not so her husband, in your husband's humble opinion. But that is between you and me, for you know I hate treason, and there is none worse than to refuse to sing praises to the best and greatest of men. The next four years were tense. The Adams administration got into a low-level naval war with France, which Hamilton and the other Federalists used as an excuse for expensive additions to the Army and the Navy. They called George Washington back to command the Army, and Hamilton got himself promoted over more senior generals to be second in command. Gallatin and the Republican minority tried to resist this military buildup, but it was not easy because the Federalists could paint them as unpatriotic. Partisan mobs came to blows in the streets. Federalist prosecutors locked up a Vermont congressman who criticized the administration in his newspaper. And tensions in Congress ran so high that some of the Republican members became physically ill and others went home. This reign of witches, as Jefferson later called it, welded a firm bond between him and Gallatin. Late in life, Jefferson would vividly remember that Mr. Gallatin and I alone remained in the House and the Senate to bid defiance to the browbeatings and insults with which they assailed us. But Jefferson did not despair. The war fever would soon pass, he assured a friend back in Virginia. The doctor is on his way to cure it, he said, in the guise of a tax collector. 
the heavier taxes needed to pay for the Federalist military spending did change the political climate, and Jefferson squeaked to victory in the next presidential election. Fiscal reform was at the top of the agenda when Jefferson took office, and it was clear that Gallatin was going to play a central role in the new administration. No cabinet member but Madison um, had a larger political reputation or wider experience than Gallatin. And Madison had been away in Virginia for the last four years while Gallatin was leading the Republican opposition. Edward Thornton, the British charge d'affaires, told London that Gallatin and Madison would be Jefferson's principal advisors. And if they became rivals, he predicted, Gallatin would prevail because he was more decisive than Madison and more capable of getting things done. Jefferson could manage foreign affairs by himself, Thornton thought, but he needed Gallatin to handle the Treasury. In fact, Gallatin and Madison worked well together. Gallatin was different from Madison and from Jefferson in very important ways. He was 18 years younger than Jefferson and 10 years younger than Madison. He was a small manufacturer rather than a farmer. And his experience in the egalitarian scramble of Pennsylvania politics was quite different from their experience in the lesser gentry that had taken over Virginia during the Revolution. But Madison and Jefferson had worked closely with Gallatin during those years in opposition, and they treated him as a political equal. Jefferson, Gallatin, and Madison were not a triumvirate, as some historians have described them. Jefferson made his own decisions, and the two others conferred only when the occasion arose. The three of them rarely met as a separate group. But Jefferson placed special confidence in Gallatin and Madison, and everyone knew that they had outsized influence. By the time the War of 1812 revealed the deep flaws in Republican policies, a, a, a Federalist from Boston could fairly lay the blame on a cabinet that he said was composed for all practical purposes of a foreigner and two Virginians. This is where the story usually ends. Everybody knows there was a great battle between Hamilton and Jefferson over financial affairs. You know that it was really Madison and Gallatin who did most of the fighting for the Jeffersonians in that battle. And we all know that the Jefferson crowd finally won. But what then? What did they do with their victory? Did they get rid of Hamilton's system? And did they have something better to replace it? We can't answer those questions without taking a closer look at Albert Gallatin. He was the man who tackled the problems that Hamilton had left behind, and the changes that he made were profound. Hamilton had never promised to pay anything other than the interest on the government's debts. Gallatin committed to repay a fixed amount of the principal each year, and he gave that payment priority over all other federal spending. Gallatin also insisted that the government should never spend more than it earned, except in wartime. He put the brakes on federal spending. He got rid of the whiskey tax. He abolished the entire Internal Revenue Service. 
He paid for the government with the revenues from import duties that ordinary people scarcely noticed because in what was still largely a subsistence economy, ordinary people bought few imported goods. Hamilton was irate in a long series of newspaper articles that he signed with the name of a Roman consul who was known for hating foreigners. He lambasted Gallatin and the other Republicans for pandering to the people and destroying the financial system needed to make the country strong. He said that practical politicians knew that the government should use its fiscal power to encourage national prosperity. Gallatin's obsession with debt repayment, he said, would sink the government and slow down economic development. Indeed, Hamilton sneered, Gallatin's reforms wouldn't even be possible if Hamilton hadn't already stabilized the government's finances. The reforms, he said, were the measures of little politicians who enjoyed the benefits of a policy which they had neither the wisdom to plan nor the spirit to adopt. But Jefferson was delighted with what Gallatin had done. The financial path ahead of us is so quiet, he rhapsodized to a friend, that we have scarcely anything to propose to the Congress. Some might carp, he said in a swipe at Hamilton, that it was they who raised the money that made it possible for us to pay the debt. But we never charged them with not raising money, only with misapplication of it. After giving back the surplus, he said, we can do more with part than they did with the whole. And Gallatin did continue to manage the government's money very well. During his first 11 years at the Treasury, he repaid nearly half of the federal debt that he had inherited and financed the Louisiana Purchase. Peace, economy, and riddance of public debt were Jefferson's mantra, and Gallatin had tried to turn those aspirations into reality. But Gallatin's frugality had a heavy price. The United States was a weak young nation on the fringe of an Atlantic world dominated by Britain and France. And for the first 25 years of the federal government's existence, those two great powers were at war. The war, which lasted until Napoleon's final defeat at Waterloo, was one of the largest military conflicts in history. America's distance from Europe gave the United States some breathing room, but not enough. The United States had a long and virtually indefensible coastline, a vast and largely ungovernable interior, and most important of all, an economy that depended on exporting food and raw material. Once Britain and France decided to disrupt trade as a way of undermining each other, collateral damage to American interests was inevitable. Yet despite this obvious threat, Gallatin insisted on giving repayment of the public debt unquestioned priority over military preparations. It was an expensive decision. When damage to American trade interests finally pushed the United States into war against Britain in 1812, the government was not prepared. It had only 7,000 men in the army, 
and 17 ships in the Navy. Its revenue depended almost entirely on taxes from Atlantic trade, which the war with Britain was going to shatter. Congress rejected Gallatin's call to reimpose the internal taxes, like the whiskey tax, because they thought those taxes would make the war too unpopular with people. And lenders, most of whom were from New England and opposed the war, hesitated to give Gallatin the enormous loans that he needed because they didn't believe that he could raise the revenue to repay them. The consequences were predictable. All three of the American attacks on British Canada during the first year of the war, of the war failed miserably. Tax revenues plummeted and the Treasury started to run out of money. Gallatin left for Europe to seek peace with Britain. After he left, Congress finally enacted the taxes that he had pressed for. But it was too late. British troops invaded Washington and burned the public buildings. American defenders were able to drive the British from Baltimore Harbor and, and Lake Champlain in New York. But American forces made little progress elsewhere. And after the British invasion, government's financial situation grew even worse than its military prospects. The Treasury ran out of money, and the government defaulted on its bonds. John Epps, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee and Jefferson's son-in-law, dutifully reported the default to the House of Representatives, who sat huddled together in a small room <coughs> of the only government building that the British had left standing. When he had finished delivering his report, he flung it on the table next to him and turning to a nearby Federalist member, asked him whether he and his party would be willing to take over the government. No, sir, replied the man, not unless you can give it to us in the condition we gave it to you. It was uh, a challenge the Republicans could not meet. A congressman close to Gallatin put the problem quite succinctly. Disgrace in taxes, he said, will suit no nation. The peace treaty that Gallatin sent home said not a word about the grievances that had started the war, but timing is everything. And the treaty got to Washington just days after the exhilarating news of Andrew Jackson's great victory over the British at New Orleans. It suddenly seemed to Americans that they had won the war. Who does not rejoice that he is not a European, said one of Gallatin's protégés in Congress. Who is not proud to feel himself an American, our wrongs revenged, our rights recognized? Well, none of that was true, of course, but the sense of relief was so overwhelming that it felt true. Younger members of the Republican Party, such as Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun, who was a great nationalist at this time, took a much more sober lesson from the war. They wanted Congress to start spending money on measures that would strengthen the country. They pushed for a large peacetime army, roads and canals into the interior, and higher tariffs to encourage domestic manufacturing. These measures horrified Gallatin's friends who 
clung to the frugal old Republican principles. But Gallatin himself quietly supported them. Under the austere old Republican system, he told his oldest friend, we were becoming too selfish, too much attached to making money, and too much confined in our political feelings to local and state objects. The war, he said, had renewed the national feelings and that had waned after the revolution, and he thought that was a good thing. But a financial panic in 1819 gave the progressive Republicans' post-war agenda a staggering blow. The economy crumbled, money was short, and voters got tested. The Republicans in Congress reverted to their frugal old ways in order to balance the budget and keep the political support that they needed from hard-pressed farmers throughout the country. Andrew Jackson's presidential victory nine years later clenched this switchback. Jackson ran for office as a man of the people committed to the old Republican policies of retrenchment and fiscal reform. And Jackson meant what he said. He stuck to Gallatin's policy of fixed annual debt payments. And 20 years after Gallatin left the Treasury, Jackson could crow that the federal government had repaid the last dollar of its debt. The federal government has never again been free from debt, but Gallatin's culture of fiscal responsibility kept the level of public spending in check throughout the 19th century. In peacetime, the federal government paid most of its bills with import duties that were effectively invisible to most Americans. And when war required borrowing, the government paid down the debt after peace returned. Modern Republicans put a statue of Alexander Hamilton on the south side of the Treasury Building in the 1920s. But the taller statue that dominates the front beside the White House is a figure of Albert Gallatin. That's no accident. For most of the last century, Hamilton was no hero. He was remembered as a big government elitist, and Gallatin was remembered as the man of the people who kept the federal government in check. So why don't we remember Albert Gallatin today? At the end of Jefferson's first term, a prominent Virginia Republican named John Taylor, a man who was so staunch in his political views that he became a sort of conscience for the rest of the party, took a few minutes to reflect on what we might call the media value of Gallatin's reforms. Brilliant as they are, he told one of Jefferson's neighbors, there's a certain counting house duskiness about them that will rapidly consign them to oblivion. Well, he obviously was right about that. But Taylor himself never meant to minimize the importance of money in American political life. His own political tracts, which were numerous, are filled with rants about the corrosive effect of money on Republican government. And Taylor believed that public finance was the beating heart of politics. Jefferson's lofty sentiments are all very well, he told James Monroe, but it was extreme folly to suppose that the bulk of the people are influenced by abstract political principles. That was never the case in any nation. What had brought the Republicans to power, he said, 
was the taxes imposed by the Federalists. And what kept them in power was the taxes they had repealed. Politicians in our own time have reduced arguments about taxes and spending to sound bites. But whatever the slogan and whatever the political persuasion, no one pretends to understand American politics without understanding where the government gets its money and what it does with it and how that affects the American economy. The early republic was really no different. And so if we want to understand what went on then, we need to know Albert Gallant, the man who was in charge of Jefferson's treasure. Thank you very much. Uh, we have time for some questions from the audience. Uh, we have a microphone to, to bring around. And if you would, before you ask your question, just say your name and any affiliation that you have. There's a question right here. Yes, uh, Milton Grenfell, American citizen. A brilliant talk. Um, uh, is your book getting any traction, uh, you know, outside of historians and, uh, or in other words, are, are uh, public officials reading it, uh, the White House reading it? Do you have any idea on that? Could you send some free copies over there? <laughs> I have no idea, but please send them a copy. <laughs> uh, one, one, of the, uh, one of the bad things about being a writer is you, you only find sort of episodically who has read your book. <laughs> This gentleman here, and then the gentleman in the back. Hi, my name is Sid Baga. I'm a student at UC Berkeley. I'm just here for a semester. Um, you said uh, by the end of Gallatin's tenure at the Treasury that he was in favor of certain public works. And, um, and I was wondering if later in life Gallatin would have been considered a Whig or a, a Democrat. In, in, that's a, that's in a very good question. And... Um, Actually, even while he was in office, uh, and I didn't mention this in the talk, even while he was in office, he produced a report on roads and canals in 1808, which stands as one of the great uh, public policy documents of the early republic, but nothing was ever really done with it. Um, and after the war, when more nationalist members of the, of the party started pushing for roads and canals, he continued to believe that that was a good idea. Um, as time went on and he aged and turned from a politician into a New York banker, he did effectively become a Whig. Uh, many of the policy positions that he took in the last part of his life were more Whig than Republican or later democratic policies. And, um, but he always remained a, a member of the Republican or Jacksonian party, and he always identified himself as, as a member of that party even until the end. And in his obituaries, you know, people noticed this sort of conflict and migration in his thinking. This gentleman in the back. Uh, hi, Paul Taylor. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I um, recall reading that when that Alexander Hamilton, when he became Treasury Secretary, inherited about a 50 to 1 debt to income ratio. And then Gallatin, when he took over, it was more like 8 to 1. 
Is that roughly correct? Or, um, and, and if so, like how would you gauge the comparative effectiveness in both those Treasury secretaries in reducing the, the huge debt after the Revolutionary War? Well, first of all, the numbers are hard to come by um, because they're disputed. And um, particularly the number you mentioned, which is sort of a debt coverage number, a, a revenue to debt ratio, is, is sort of incomparable from one period to another simply because the tax system and the federal, the whole federal system changed so radically during that period. Um, but to try to answer the essence of your question, wh what Hamilton did was not repay the revolutionary debt, which by the time he came to office had mounted with unpaid interest and other claims and all sorts of things to roughly $85 million. Um, what he did was refinance it. He simply issued new bonds for the old bonds. And that had two advantages, well, several advantages, but two principal advantages. One was he reduced the interest rate because um, after the adoption of the Constitution, there was more confidence that the federal government had the power to collect the taxes it would need to pay the debt. And so he was able to um, get the debt holders to accept bonds carrying a lower rate. And the second thing that it did was rationalize the debt, um, which had been a mess. You know, all kinds of debt instruments, um, many of them hard to understand, many of them hard to quantify. And he sort of brought it all together, came up with a fixed sum. Now, Gallatin and some of the other Republicans argued strenuously that he had refinanced too much, that if he had actually taken the time to look at the debts and do set-offs and so on, he could have saved 10 to 15% on the total. Um, but by the time, um, not only by the time Hamilton left office, but by the time the Federalists left office by 1800, when Adams was defeated, they had repaid no debt. Indeed, they had added, and again, the numbers are hard to come by, but somewhere between five and 10 million to the, the total debt. Uh, much of that was due to that quasi-naval war with France in the 1790s. Um, so what Gallatin inherited was a refinanced debt that had been slightly enlarged. And then that's the debt he said about paying. This gentleman over here. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Joe Gutentag. I used to work at Treasury. Uh, and now I give tours, and I'll be able to uh, add something to uh, Mr. Gallatin when I get to Mr. Gallatin's portrait, uh, as I always had a lot to be able to say about Hamilton. Now I can uh, have some more to say about uh, Secretary Gallatin. Uh, let me, uh, I had learned, I guess, from reading about Hamilton that those debts that would you describe uh, were not necessarily expenditures uh, by the government that uh, Hamilton created, but much of that was debt which he had absorbed from the states after the war where he felt it was may have been consistent with his political views about borrowing, but was also uh, a political issue 
where he thought it was important to strengthen, at that time, the uh, brand new federal government. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, to put it into hard numbers, uh, the federal government had a debt of roughly 50 to 55 million from the Revolutionary War. Um, that was all claims, et cetera, et cetera. The states had debts of about another 25 million. Um, and the re Hamilton actually had several reasons for wanting to assume the federal, uh, sorry, the state debts. Um, the one you mentioned, you know, he thought it would strengthen the federal government um, if all the, all the debt was consolidated and under federal control. Um, he also had a good financial reason for doing it. Uh, he, he pointed out that if the federal government and the state governments were competing for lending, that was going to be bad for both of them, actually, because they would drive up the cost of money. And it would also give each of them less assurance that they could actually get the money that they needed. Um, it was also for that reason that he wanted to create the Bank of the United States which is another huge and important subject in the uh, financial history of the early republic that I didn't have time to touch on in this short talk. Um, Gallatin, interestingly, did not oppose the Bank of the United States. He was one of the few prominent Republicans, indeed maybe the only one, who, uh, who thought that the bank should be rechartered and continued. Any other questions? Well, sure, and then. Uh, when did Gallatin's system end? His basic system um, survived through most of the 19th century. Um, there was, of course, a big change during the Civil War when the absolutely staggering cost of that war, staggering financial cost of that war, required the federal government to borrow huge, unprecedentedly huge amounts of money to impose lots of new taxes, including the first income tax. Um, but at, even after that war was over, um, the government sort of reverted to a Gallatin system of basically funding the government based on tariffs. Land sales became more important as the 19th century went on. They were pretty unimportant in the early republic. But th those were the principal sources of, of the government's uh, revenue until the early 20th century. Uh, and, and that's, of course, when the, financial the federal financial system we now know got created. Um, and a lot of people perhaps fairly regard it as a ha our system as a Hamiltonian system. Uh, but it didn't have much to do with Hamilton because um, his system was long gone. The, when, you, when you read about Gallatin, one of the things that strikes me is he was, in effect, a one-man OMB, going around trying to find places to economize throughout government and installing what we would think of today as internal controls on government, which they weren't used to, and asking Congress to uh, draft appropriations language with greater specificity. And then he also uh, was very much a proponent of uh, what we would today think of as merit appointments as opposed to political patronage. I was wondering if you could talk about more of those sort of good government themes. Yeah. Well, there, there's a lot in the book about that because it is a huge part of his contribution 
um, to the development of the Treasury and the development of um, administration. Um, he was uh, he he was criticized um, by some of his contemporaries and also some historians as being a politician who wasn't political enough. <laughs> and I think in many ways that's a fair criticism because once he got to the Treasury, he was very focused on doing what he thought was the sensible thing. Um, so, for example, just to sort of take the, the issues that he encountered in order, um, he was an opponent of a lot of patronage appointments in the first Jefferson administration that everybody else in the party was pushing for pretty strongly. Um, and that made him a lot of enemies, including some of the people who ultimately brought him down. Um, he was absolutely insistent that the Treasury would keep better records, give fuller reports to the Congress. Indeed, he got Congress to enact a statute requiring him to give fuller reports to the Congress. And um, he also was adamant that um, spending which at that time was done and then paid or reimbursed by the Treasury, that spending uh, would not be reimbursed unless it had been authorized. And his notion of what was authorized was much narrower than the notion that had prevailed during the previous uh, Federalist administrations, which also made him some enemies, uh, especially when people didn't get paid who thought that they should have been reimbursed. So those were, those were key things that he insisted on. Uh, he did not throw uh, Federalist employees out of the Treasury, uh, despite being urged to do so by Jefferson himself. He kept some of those people there, and they were there you know, 15 years later. All right, any other questions? Well, thank you all very much for coming, and. Thank you, Greg, for, for your book and your presentation. You did a great job. Thank you.